Father, as we come before you today and we begin to allow your word to search our hearts, Father, I ask that you would do that very thing, that we would gain a, a deeper insight into who you are in all the dimensions of your personality, your characteristics. So, Father, we want to understand you, not, not a God that we're fashioning in our own imagination, not a God that maybe is like ourselves and we think this is what God is like because I'm like this. But we want to discover who you are so that we become like you, so that we can be changed, that we can understand the, the multifaceted nature of who you are. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts, you'd open our ears, that you would move past our, understand, our preconceived understandings and maybe how we've understood things, that just give us an open heart to hear what your voice wants to say into our lives today how this chapter applies to us in this moment. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. We've been looking at it. We're in chapter 7 today. Uh, I think if you weren't here last Sunday, you probably should listen to that podcast because chapter 6 I actually explain the, the tools that I'm using or the interpretive tools I'm using to unlock this book. If you were here, you probably heard that. Sorry, it's just that I had that little wafer and I got caught in my little, that little dust in my throat. So, <clears throat> excuse me. In, in May 18th, 1980, I was actually uh, traveling from Spokane to Seattle, Washington. I lived in Seattle. I was going to college at the time. Patty and I had driven her sister-in-law, and my, her sister, my sister-in-law, and brother-in-law to Spokane to visit his brother. And while we were traveling, it was, happened to be on a Sunday, so I made a decision to attend church first before I went home. It's about a five-hour drive, so we went to a service. And as we're driving about an hour out of Spokane, I noticed this eerie experience. I mean, it looked like there was a huge storm coming our way, you know, big rain clouds. It looked like it was all dark and everything. And we just kept driving, and pretty soon, you know, the cars in front of us evaporated, you know, and Pat, you know, it was really weird because it, it started to look like there was things falling, but it wasn't rain. It was ash. And it, pretty soon, the more I was driving, and I'm listening to the radio trying to figure out what's going on here, I discovered that Mount St. Helens had erupted. Some of you probably were scraping ash off your vehicle because I was reading that it actually traveled all the way up to Edmonton. That's how far ash went. And, you know, Mount St. Helens is about 50 miles uh, south of Seattle. So that was quite a distance for that ash to, to, to travel through the air. When I, re, when I, I remember hearing this before, so I researched it again to make sure this was the actual fact. But at that moment of that eruption, the power of Mount St. Helens equaled 20,000 Nagasaki atomic blasts. 20,000. It's like 20,000 atomic bombs going off. Does that give you a little sense of the power and the magnitude? That was the greatest natural disaster in U.S. history. Actually, 57 people were killed. 54 of them were actually outside of the zone that they considered, you know, they were in the safe zone. But see, man underestimated the power of a volcano. They had no idea what it was going to do. They had no idea of the destructive nature of this one mountain. Now, when I think about that, I just start, in my mind, think of the magnitude of the power of the one who created it all. 
and all the mountains and all the volcanoes and all the earthquakes. We're talking about a God of all power. Well, the book of Deuteronomy is another sermon. I said earlier Hebrews was a sermon. The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon. If you think I preach long, read the book. Moses was a lot longer winded than I am. Anyways, Moses is now preaching a sermon to a new generation about to go into the promised land. The former generation, except with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, had failed to go into the promised land because they did not believe God. And they spent 40 years wandering in a wilderness, and their primary characteristic was that they were just gripers. All they did was complain, 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 and finally God just said, I've had enough of you guys, and he just let them die out in the wilderness. None of them entered into God's promises. None of them experienced what God longed for them to experience. They just fell short of entering into what we would call rest. The book of Hebrew brings that out in chapter 3. But here in chapter 32, Moses is saying some pretty strong stuff, and I think that a lot of times... We just kind of overlook some of these elements of the nature of God in our lives because a lot of us want to believe that God's a lot like us. Isn't that true? But if we believe that God is exactly like us, what we've really done is shrunk God down and made him in our image. And I think a lot of Christians in North America tend to do that. We don't want to think about God as he really is. So what I want to do is unveil God a little bit today. I want to disclose him as he really is. And I think when we see him as he really is, then you and I can conform to him rather than, you know, bringing God down to our level. And so in Deuteronomy 32, Moses talks something of the nature of God and the inconsistencies of God's people. In chapter 32, it starts out, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. In other words, they're always right. God doesn't make mistakes. We do, but God doesn't. A faithful God who does no wrong. How many have ever sat down and said, you know, I don't like what God's doing here. Or, you know, I really disagree with what God's doing. Or this doesn't seem right to me. None of us ever thought that, huh? But here Moses is saying to us, a God who does no wrong, upright and just as he. They, speaking of God's people, are corrupt and they're not his children. That's that, that group that was in the wilderness. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, our creator, who made you and formed you? They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior. Wow. Here's the charge Moses is saying. This is what's going to happen. This is where you're going to go. You're going to actually one day be unfaithful to God. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. Now, you know, we say, what is idolatry, pastor? Because the great sin in the Old Testament, really when you get down to it, was idolatry. But what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in anything or anyone other than God. And so if I'm not putting my full trust in God and I'm looking to something other than God, be it myself, my work, my spouse, you know, my government, whatever it is, scientists, it becomes an idol. And God says, you have forsaken me. He was upset with this generation because they had turned their backs on him. All the good things God had done. I mean, he had delivered them from slavery. They had saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea part. God had provided supernaturally in the wilderness. And these guys were worshiping idols. And it started right off the bat, just before they're going to go into the land there. Like right, right just almost after their deliverance. Remember, they, they had that 
uh, situation at, at Belpior where they, where they got involved in idolatry and got involved in, you know, immorality. Well, you read about that in the scriptures. This is what Moses is talking about. Then they made a golden calf. On and on it goes. <clears throat> he says, I will heap calamities on them and send my arrows against them. Now, who's speaking? God, Moses is speaking, but he's speaking on behalf of God. God says, I'm going to be an enemy to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, don't, I can handle some enemies, but some enemies I can't handle. I don't know about you, but I don't want God as my enemy. I don't, I don't think I'm going to fare very well if God's my enemy. I'd rather have a bunch of people my enemy and God before me than to have God my enemy and a bunch of people for me. And yet in our culture, sometimes that's what we do. We tend to, you know, bow to the whims and, you know, understandings that people have and we make God our enemy. And listen to what God says. I will heap calamity on them. I'm going to spend my arrows against them. He says, I will send wasting famine against them. I'll send consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts and the the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. How many know that doesn't sound very nice? How many go, I really don't want God to get upset with me. I got my hand up. I don't really want to be God's enemy. I don't want God to get upset with me. I don't want to experience all of the things that God said he's going to bring. And then we read this. You go, well, boy, almost sounds like God's throwing a temper tantrum or something, you know. No, he's not. God is vindicated in his behavior. And it says this, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Now, that little verse immediately in my mind takes me to Romans chapter 12 where Paul's quoting this verse from Deuteronomy and he's using it to talk about not exacting revenge, personal revenge. He says, no, just lay it all down. Let God take care of it. And he quotes this verse. But the context of the verse is different. Paul's making an application to our human relationships, but really the context of what he's quoting goes like this. In due time, their foot will slip. In other words, God says, I'm the one who's been vilified. I'm the one who's been, you know, can you know treat it unfairly i'm the one who did all these wonderful things for my people and then they they turned their back on me forsook me cheated on me and went after other gods and he said hey i'm the one i'm gonna exact vengeance on them for doing this he said and then it says in due time their foot will slip their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them now how many go that's kind of a scary thought what god is saying is they're skating on slippery, you know, they're, they're skating on thin ice, basically. And there's a moment where everything's going to collapse on them. It's just, it's going to happen just that powerfully. Now, you and I know, and I'm going to ask the question, how many here, you've actually heard a sermon before on the wrath of God? Raise your hand. You've actually heard a sermon on the wrath of God. Some of you. I actually preached one. But I mean, how many, just a few of you. So how many know that this is not the predominant theme in our generation? Has anybody figured that out yet? We don't ever hear about God getting upset about sin. That's not what's being preached all the time. All we're hearing about is the love of God, the love of God. And it's all true. And God is loving. But I don't think we fully understand the dimension of God's love unless you understand the full scope of God's nature. And that's why I think we need to understand this part. Because I read it in Psalm 2. God says his anger flares up in a moment, right? How many want, I really don't want to tick God off. You know, I got my hand up. I don't really want to do that. I don't want to experience that, right? But in the 18th century in New England, there was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And in 1741, he preached a sermon in his own church called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. A week later, he was invited to speak in a neighboring community called Enfield. He went there and preached that sermon. 
And no kidding, God moved supernaturally. They had a major outpouring of God's spirit. People got saved, got right with God. And let me just give you some quotes from that sermon because really what uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards does is preach from the very last text that I just read here, Deuteronomy 32, 35. And he says this, they were always exposed to destruction. He's speaking of people who don't know God. They're always in a state of being exposed to destruction as one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to falling. How many have ever walked on a treacherous place? You know, how many walk here in Alberta in the wintertime? You step on a bunch of ice. That is pretty treacherous. How many have ever gone down? Yeah. And it can happen very quickly. As a matter of fact, that's his next line. Another thing implied is that they were liable to fall of themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another. As he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. You know, you just step all of a sudden. The next thing you know, you're down. You don't even remember. You didn't even try to catch yourself. I mean, it happened so fast. You were gone. You're on, the, you're on the ground going, what hit me? Well, you slipped. And your own weight took you down. Now, he says, God won't hold them up in these slippery places any longer. But will let them go. And then at that very instant, they will fall into destruction. What I'm going to explain to you right now is that actually all of humanity right now is being held by God. He's holding us all up. Everybody on this planet is experiencing life, experience the sun, the rain, the blessings, the good things. Actually, what God is, all he's doing is holding you up. If God was to let you go, you would fall. That's true of all of us. Satan, sin are alike. God is holding us. Thank God he's holding us up. Or we'd go down real fast. He goes on to say, the wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation doesn't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wetted and held over them, and the pit hath opened her mouth under them. He's just basically describing, he says, that people apart from Christ are doomed to eternal judgment. But God is holding them. Then he says this, the devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own at what moment God shall permit him. In other words, if God lets go, Satan is there to grab. But he goes on to say they belong. Wow, that went fast. They belong to him. He has their souls in his possession and under his dominion. The scripture represents them as his goods. If you read the scriptures very carefully, if we're not in the kingdom of God, we're not in the kingdom of light, we're in the kingdom of darkness. We're not serving God, we're serving Satan. Folks, there is no such thing as absolute freedom. We're either serving one or the other. And Satan has people under his dominion. And the Bible clearly represents that position. The devils watch them. They're ever by them. At their right hand, they stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back. Who's keeping them back? God is. If God should withdraw his hand by which they are restrained, they would in one moment fly upon their poor soul. So what's keeping us from absolute destruction is God's amazing grace, his restraining hand. He's holding humanity in his hands. That old serpent is gaping for them. Hell has opened its mouth wide to receive them. And if God should permit it, they would be hastily swallowed up and lost. So now the question is raised, and this is what's going to help us understand the the text we're going to look at in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, in verse 17, a question is raised, and here's the question. Who can stand the great day 
of the wrath of God. I'm just actually quoting the text. And when you understand it that way, I'll read it. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Who can stand on the day of the Lord? Who can stand the day of God's judgment? That is a very important question, and most people never consider it. But we're all headed there. We're all going to stand before God one day. We're all going to stand before judgment. And the question that is being raised, and I think it's a very powerful question, is who can stand on that day? And chapter 7 is going to answer that question. And that's what we need to understand. So here we see here in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, this picture. He says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Now, last week, I talked about the symbolic nature of a lot of these numbers. Four was symbolic. It encompasses everything, the four corners of the earth. And so what he's got is four messengers. And some some, uh, scholars believe that these four winds is actually the four horses of the apocalypse in other words, what's going on in the book of Revelation is not chronological in order. That's, that's not the way to look at the book. What you're getting is a vision upon vision of God showing you what's happening at the end. God is showing us a picture of, of what God is trying to accomplish in the lives and fulfill his purposes in human history. That's what we're looking at. So, it says here, then I saw another angel. Now, the word angel in the Greek, just means messenger. It just means a messenger. And God can use all kinds of messengers. That's what I'm trying to get at. How many know there's good angels and there's bad angels? They're just messengers. So this is what it says. I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. So these, whoever these four angels are has authority to do damage. It's an expression of judgment. But now one angel says, hold them. Hold them back right now. Don't let them do anything. Do not harm the land or the sea, verse 3, or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So God is restraining judgment until something can be accomplished. How many see that? He's stopping, he's stopping this destruction until he does something before that. And what he wants to do is put a seal on the foreheads of his servants. You know, we, a lot of times when we're, um, you know, we, we get to this place, and the world really loves images, you know, and they, they all talk about the mark of the beast. Isn't that something that the whole culture talks about? But here we're looking at the mark of God, and we're going to take a look at what that means in a few minutes. Now, I like what Robert Wall writes in his commentary on the truth of the gospel. He says, The good news is that through the exalted Lamb, God has announced the availability of that transforming power necessary to redeem all humanity and to restore all creation. The gospel interprets the present passage as a word of hope for suffering believers. We need to understand that's the context. Who cry out for vindication and also for suffering unbelievers whose plea seeks a path that will lead them to peace or shalom. The ultimate purpose of divine wrath is redemption. That's what we need to understand. See, God is not here to try to scare us. He's here to help us understand, like a, like a father whose child has gone wayward, he wants to discipline them in order to restore them. That's the purpose of God. So here we see God's anger is always subordinate to and qualified by God's mercy. I love that. 
In other words, God wants to show mercy more than he wants to show judgment. And we know that that's true because God himself took the judgment of humanity upon himself in order to demonstrate mercy. So we know that mercy triumphs over judgment. Actually, there's a text in Scripture that says that, the book of James. It says mercy triumphs over judgment. God wants to show mercy rather than judgment. But if people reject his mercy, all there's left is what? Judgment. And that's what we need to understand. That's the part people never talk about. That's the part people don't get. And we need to hear that message. It's very important. So in chapter 7, we're going we're gonna to discover two things there. One, the identity of the people who are able to stand on the day of his wrath. And number two, we're going to discover the means of how do we get to that place where we can stand on the day of his wrath. And the third thing, though I've only got two points, but the third thing really is what's the benefit of being able to stand on the day of his wrath? So let's take a look at it. The first of all, we discover their identity. So who's able to stand? Good question. Here we're introduced to 144,000 who are sealed by the angel of God. And so the question is, who are these people? And here's where the debate begins. It, it really does. You know, there's some that come to your door every Saturday and will tell you who the 144,000, but I think they're totally out to lunch. That's not, the right, that's not the right answer. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, I want you to notice something, some key words, and I pointed this out to you last week, but I'll point it out to us again. It says in verse 4, Then I heard, I want you to underline the word heard, because I think that's important. Remember last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, I'm going I'm to help you right now. It says in, earlier, John was weeping because there was nobody worthy to open the scroll that had the seven seals. Remember that? He was weeping, and then somebody said, Don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah is able to open the seven seals. And he says, I, he was told that. But he says, and when I looked, I saw not a lion, but what did he see? He saw a lamb that, that as if he had been slain. So John was told it was a lion, but when he looked, he saw a lamb. I want you to understand something. Things are not always what we think. So here now, we're going to see that same little movement again in this chapter where it says, I heard that there were 144,000 from the tribe of Israel. Then he lists off 12 tribes. And by the way, this is the first time that this list has been given in this order. And there's one tribe missing. And there's a reason for it, speculative reason. I'm not going to go into all that. But I'm going to just say this. So there's 144,000 from the tribe of Israel. That's what he heard. But then I want you to notice in verse 9, what, is it, what does it say? But in verse 9, after this, I looked... And what did I see before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So he heard one thing, but when he looked, he saw something even more significant. Now I think, and, and I'm going to give you my interpretation of this, but there's three valid interpretations. But let me, before we get there, let's just say this. Here's the question. Who are these people? And here's what we can be sure of. Nobody's going to dispute this. Number one, they're God's servants. Okay? How do you know they're God's servants? They're wearing white robes. Okay? And they're standing before the throne of God. Those are two clues that these are God's servants. Anybody have a problem with that? No, it's pretty obvious. They're servants of God. Okay, number two, they're standing before the throne, which answers the question raised in chapter six. Who can stand? These people obviously can stand because they're standing there. 
In other words, they have access to God's throne. And the psalmist raises that question in Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart. Then he goes on to say this in after uh, verse 9. We've read it. Let me read it again, and I'll read verse 10 with it. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Third thing we can be sure of, they are worshiping God and the Lamb who has provided salvation. They're not providing salvation for themselves. Okay, that is such an important point because there's a lot of religion in the world that says you have to earn your way to heaven. This this text teaches me that the only people that can stand before the throne of God are those who have received God's provision of salvation that comes through the lamb that was slain for our sins. That's pretty clear that we we can say that with great, you know, um, authority. I don't think you can dispute that. That's the way it works. Okay, the very question now of their identity is being raised actually in the chapter. So I think that's another clue to help us get an answer. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders, I hope you guys are looking at this. I'm reading the actual text. You know, I don't put it on PowerPoint because I want you to actually look in your Bibles. That's a clue. You know, I'm going to read the chapter here. I'm not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. It's right here. Verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Okay, so the question's being raised. We want to know. The Bible wants us to know. It's actually asking the question. He says, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of great tribulation, have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, here's where we have a little, little differences of viewpoint. And I want to talk about that. Number one, and I, I have a book at home, real fat, The Hard Sayings of the Bible. That's why it's a fat book. There's a lot of hard sayings in the Bible, right? And there's a multiple listing of scholars who are writing to this. And one of the writers who's actually touching on Revelation, his name is Peter Davids, he writes, scholars are unsure of the author's real meaning, so we can only make the best informed guess possible. In such situation, dogmatism is ruled out. Why I'm saying that is, it's okay to have, in this church, different viewpoints. I'm comfortable with that, Okay. Just because you think yours is the right viewpoint, somebody else may have a different viewpoint. And you know what? And there's some points in the Bible where it's okay to have a difference of view. How's that? Everybody okay with that? Some of you might get upset and say, Pastor, I don't like that. I'm going, well, hey, you can't be dogmatic on every point. We're going to be dogmatic on how we can stand before God. That point we can be dogmatic about, okay? Now, who these people are is where we get into a little bit of trouble. The question is being raised. So... Here's what Peter Davids relates. He says there are pre-predominant views, you know, uh, of who 144,000 are. The problem with the number, let's start with the number. It is clearly symbolic. 144,000 is really neat, you know, good clean number. All those numbers have symbolism to it. Now, I'm not going to get into what does it mean? Why 144,000? That's not the point. Here's the point. 
that it's symbolic of a group of people. So the first viewpoint is that this is a group of Jews whom God will redeem at the end of the age. In other words, these are the people, you know, if you're a futurist and you look at the book of Revelation, you're going to say these are the Jews that became Christians after the Great Tribulation. That's one viewpoint. It's a very popular viewpoint, okay? The second is that this is symbolic of a group of martyrs whom God preserves for martyrdom. I, that's a little weaker for me. I don't, that, that one doesn't really do a lot. Third is that this number is symbolic of the whole church, which God will protect through the tribulation at the end of the age. Now, you know, I don't really have a strong viewpoint on either one, on any of these three, except for the second one I think is very weak. But let me what I tell you what I think is going on here. I actually think, this is my opinion, Okay, notice I said that. It's an opinion. You can argue with me. And you could be right and I could be wrong at this point. How's that? Is that good? Is that good for everybody? Here's what I think. I think the 144,000 and the great multitude is actually the same group. I think what he hears and what he sees is the same thing. And I think what he's doing is he's showing us that both covenant peoples, Old Testament people and New Testament people, are actually a part of God's overall people. And that what happened was the new old covenant people were looking forward to the coming of Christ and that their true salvation wasn't based on what they did. Their true salvation was based on the fact that they trusted God, they sacrificed, they believed the sacrifice was for their sin and that this was a symbolic sacrifice of a greater sacrifice to come. And that they were looking forward to the day of the Messiah. And that so that the cross is the point that they're looking to. And that they're saved based on the same criteria as the new covenant people who are now looking back at what Christ did at the cross providing salvation for us. I think that's what I'm getting from this chapter. Okay? You can disagree with that. That's okay. And, but here's, here's another thing that we need to look at here. Let's go back to the ceiling for a minute. This is so interesting. You know... Now, God is not going to let this happen until he seals these people. So what's going on there? Well, first of all, God is identifying who his people are. How many say that's true? He's doing that. He's sealing them so that he won't judge them. And we can see that prefigured in the Old Testament at the Passover. When God was going to call his people out, he told them, take lambs, enough for a household, slay the lamb, put the blood over the doorpost. When the angel of judgment comes, he's going to pass over your house, okay? So everybody that he saw that was their house in the sense, their household was sealed, the angel passed over. If you were an Egyptian and believed that, you could have joined with an Israeli and had that happen, and you know what? You would have been spared. And by the way, there were Egyptians that went into the wilderness with the Israelites because they actually, they actually heard this and responded to it. Then there were maybe a few Israelites that were stubborn and said, no, I don't need to do that. Guess what happened? They got, they got zapped. So we need to understand something. This is the way it works. Now, there's another story in the Old Testament that I think is even closer to this one, and it's found in Ezekiel. It says, Ezekiel is in captivity. He's in, he's a, he's in Babylon, but he's writing about the impending destruction of the people who hadn't been taken captive yet. And he's writing about the impending destruction of Jerusalem, and he, and he has a vision in Babylon, and he says this, Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the forehead of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. In other words, God realized that not everybody in the city 
was happy about what was going on, that there were actually righteous people as well as unrighteous people. Even though the majority had become unrighteous, they were still some godly people. So God is now identifying them, okay? You see that in the vision, he's identifying these people. And then it says this, As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion all the people that didn't have the mark. He says, slaughter the old men, young men, women, children, mothers, but do not touch anyone who has the mark beginning at my sanctuary. So they began with the old man who were in front of the temple. Wow, that's powerful. So God, what is he doing? He's making a distinction between those that belong to him and those that do not belong to him. How many see that? He's making a distinction. He's sealing us. So, pastor, what is this really all about? Well, you know, God's going to judge that's something we keep forgetting. And even Peter brings it up, and he says it this way. For it is, for it, in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is the time for judgment to begin with God's family or household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? So what does the sealing really mean? Well, I think Dale Johnson says, in the first century, secular world, slaves were sealed on their foreheads. Can you imagine this? You know, you had a seal. So, you, you know, you have goods. You just put your seal on. That belongs to me. That belongs to me. Oh, yeah. Slaves were a big deal in that day. Just put a seal on the person's forehead. So they're walking around the marketplace. They got a seal on their forehead. Why did they do that? So that everybody knew who owned them and who they were working for. And, it, and it, it is not merely coincidence that John uses the word servant or slave to describe disciples and Jews, the new Israel. We who belong to Jesus as his slaves have been sealed. We're owned by him and he bought us for himself. So if you've come to Christ, you're a slave. And Paul brings that out in the book of Romans. We're either a slave to God or we're a slave to sin. There's only, you have a choice. Who are you going to serve? Uh, the Savior? Or Satan. You're either in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. Does everybody see that? That's, a, that's it. That's the only two options the Bible gives us. You say, oh, I just don't believe the Bible. I can't control that, but I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. That's it. You know? Now, the Apostle Paul talks about being sealed. So, how do you know that you have the mark of God on your forehead? How do you know that you're sealed by God? Well, Paul says it this way. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So, this is why you, how you know you're a Christian. God's Spirit lives inside of you. Isn't that amazing? God seals us with his spirit. God's presence comes into our lives. That's why he could write later on in that chapter, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So God, there is a day of redemption. God's going to bring us to that very end, and we're all going to know who belongs to who because the spirit of God lives inside of believers. We're sealed by his spirit. It's a very powerful thing. Okay, well, let me move on to the second point, and I've only got three minutes, so I'll do it. Yeah, it's, I'll make it brief. So what are the means of being able to stand on the day of judgment? Well, we all know that the key to being victorious worshipers is that it says here they were wearing white robes. Remember last week I said, what does white represent? Not just purity, not just righteousness, but also what? Victory. They were, they were victorious. So these are the victorious worshipers. 
You know, and they were crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So salvation actually comes from God. Salvation is a gift from God, and it's as we receive it, we're able to stand. Our justification before God isn't something we do, but rather something God has done on our behalf, namely dying for our sins. What do we do? We accept it. We receive it. We say yes to it. We turn... uh, from serving ourselves to serving Christ. We turn from sin and Satan to serve the true and the living God. Notice what it says. Not only does God save us, he blesses us with a satisfaction that we have never, will never experience in living life selfishly. Look at verses 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Interesting. By the way, there is no temple in heaven. It's the presence of God. Temple speaks of the abode of God, the dwelling place of God. And, and later on in Revelation, we'll see it. There's no temple. God is the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know what he's doing? That's actually an Old Testament verse. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 49, verse 10. That's what he's doing. You know what he's basically saying? He's saying simply this, that in this life, no matter what you pursue, once you attain it, you'll never be satisfied unless it's God himself. Go for it. Try it. You can try everything in this life. And when you get it, at the end, you're going to go, it's still not satisfying. There's still something missing. I'm still empty. But I'll tell you what, if you find God and God finds you and you respond to him, you can come to that place where you literally can say, I'm at peace, I'm at rest. I'm satisfied. I have a purpose. You know, Leon Morris goes on to say this. I was just quoting Isaiah. It says, they will know no unsatisfied desire. They will not hunger. They will not thirst. They will not suffer sunstroke nor burning heat. Typical physical ills are taken as symbols. Whatever the torment, they will be free from it. What I really like is simply this, that, you know, we are going to be free from all the evil and pain that this world inflicts. That's what he's basically getting at. We're going to be set free from all of that. And isn't that a beautiful thought? No more sickness. No more disappointments. No more bad relationships. We could just go down the track. I could just go down the list. No more financial you know, difficulties. Just name something that's tormenting you. That'll all be gone. Actually, you won't even have a reason to cry. No more tears. No more sorrow. Complete joy. You know, Earl Palmer reminds us of something powerful regarding the book. It's written to people who are suffering. We've got to keep that in mind. And you know what they're suffering? With the injustices of this world. They're suffering with this. You know, the consolation what Revelation proclaims is not based on the fact that it extols human heroism, but that it proclaims the future victory of God. So, what can I take away from this chapter? I'm, I'm going to have a stand right now. But two things to take away from this chapter. Number one, only two responses. If I'm not putting my trust in Christ, I'll not be able to stand on the day of judgment. Okay, how many see it? If I'm not trusting in God's salvation, I will not be able to stand in the day of his wrath. Is God justified in getting upset about the inequalities, the injustices, the evils, 
the abuses of our world? Is God justified in being angry at those things? Of course he is. And he's going to deal with it. So point number one is simply this. If I don't know Christ, what ground am I standing on? And Jonathan Edwards, if he was here today, he would tell you, you're standing on slippery ground. And the only thing that's keeping you from falling is God's restraining, wonderful grace holding you right now. But you know what? Eventually, if you're not standing on Christ, you will slip and fall into sudden destruction. The second point that we need to understand is there's a lot of you standing here today saying, you know, Pastor, I've experienced abuse. I've experienced ill treatment. I've been wronged. I've been treated unfairly and unjustly. And that's you today. And you've been hurt. You've been offended. You've been wounded. You're in pain. You just go, Lord, how long is this going to continue, this injustice? And I'm saying to you today, there's a day coming when all of those things will be addressed. But right now, what I would say to you is, you've got to let go of your hurt, your offense, your unforgiveness, and your bitterness. You need to trust that that day is coming when God will deal with every wrong. God will deal with every injustice in this world. There's a day coming. He'll do it. If I was you, I'd be praying for the person that's done evil to you and say, Lord, help them because they have no idea of the wrath of of the Lamb that's coming. God's going to deal with these people. And if they don't turn to Him for mercy, they're going to suffer terribly. Is that powerful? Yes, it is. And so with every head bowed, how many here say, you know, Pastor, today, I can honestly say I have not been putting my trust in Christ. I've been putting my trust in something other than Him. And I realize that today, sudden destruction could come my way. It was so ironic. I was driving to church this morning. And as I'm driving, I've come to a major intersection in our city. And my light is green and I'm going to drive through. And all of a sudden, a car just went right through the red light. Man, I tell you, that, that gets you going in the morning. Another second more, I could have been in eternity. Because that person was really moving through that intersection. And then just about 50 feet ahead of me, a rabbit darts out in front of me. I'm just going, my goodness, what's going on here this morning? All to say this, life is so fragile. You know, I have done three funerals in the last two months of young people in their 20s and 30s. 18, 30-something. I mean, we're talking young people. You and I have no guarantee of tomorrow. And so if I'm saying to you today, if you do not, have not put your faith in Christ, you have not trusted Jesus, you are standing on unsure ground. And you have no, you have nothing to stand on in the day of God's, God's anger, judgment, His wrath. I mean, I just think a look at what happened at Mount St. Helens. I'm going, whoa, one volcano. God is more intense than a volcano, folks. You and I will not be able to stand on that day. The only safe ground is by putting my faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you're here today. You've never done that. You want to do that today. You say, you know what? I want to make sure. God's been hanging on to me all this time. And don't tell me. I hear young people say, yeah, when I get a little older, I'll do it. You have no guarantee that you won't slip and fall. You have no guarantee. 
Anybody here? People in the first service responded. Anybody here? In the second service. Okay, just raise your hand if that's you. I'm not here to embarrass you. I just want to make sure you're standing on solid rock. Second question, how many here say, you know, Pastor, there's been so much abuse, hurt, and heartache in my life. And I have to admit, you know what? I'm not, I have not addressed some of these things in my soul. I recognize today God will vindicate. God will deal with all that stuff. But right now, I've let anger and bitterness and hurt in my life consume me. I've let these things trouble me. And I want to let them go today. I want to be free. I'm going to let God deal with that stuff. Just raise your hand. That's you today. Yeah, quite a few people are raising their hands right now. That's good. Yeah, just let it go. I'm going to pray for you that you just let that stuff go. Let go of your hurt. Let go of your anger. Let go of your bitterness. You need to say, God, just forgive them. You deal with them. I'll let them. I'll let you handle it at the end of the age. You'll deal with these guys. God will. Believe me, he will. No injustice will be overlooked before Almighty God. Not one. God will deal with it. We have a great God, folks. Let us not diminish him by believing in something less than what the Bible teaches about him. Amen? Let us not squeeze him into our puny little mole, but let's let God be God. And let's, let's see him for who he really is and let's become like him. That's the goal. So Lord, I pray today that you would oversee our hearts. You, you know what's going on in every soul. If there's some that are resisting, I pray in the days to come that these words would just penetrate their hearts and minds and that they would surrender to you. I pray as well, Father, for those that have been broken and hurt and there's been hurt and angst and anger and unforgiveness and bitterness. I pray that we'll just let it go right now. We just, we turn it over to you, Father. We just say, Lord, I turn this person to you. I turn these circumstances to you. I turn the past abuse to you. I let them all go now, Lord. I recognize you are God and you will deal with all injustice. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.